from John 4, and, but I'm not going to read all the way through it because it's 44 verses, and by the time I've read that, the meeting will be pretty well over. So I'm going to go from John 4, 1 to 44, but I'm just going to talk my way through it. Okay, so you'll need to go home and read through it and check it and make sure that I'm doing justice to it. That's your responsibility. So you can talk about that together, no doubt, or uh, interact with it. But I'll just, rather than read it all out, just want to talk my way through it. And this is about conversations with Jesus. Um, So uh, it ought to be that, really. And more of a kind of conversational type of uh, of sermon. So I'm just going to talk my way through it without kind of other references. I'm not going to talk about different stories of life or anecdotes or any other thing. We're just going to work our way through this scripture. And hopefully, by the end of it, we'll be encouraged together. So Jesus was talking with Nicodemus. Uh, That's the sermon that Sam did a couple of weeks back. Uh, Did really well. Uh, So Nicodemus is upper class. He's wealthy. He's a leader and probably known by all or good many. And then we get this break before we get to this next story where we go and find out what's happening with John the Baptist and his disciples. And in the midst of that, uh, you get the, possibly the greatest statement by a person other than Jesus ever. He says, at the midst of this, pointing away from himself and towards Jesus, he said, I must decrease, he must increase. What an incredible expression of humility to point to Jesus and say, you know, I need to recede. Jesus needs to come to the fore. Now, the Pharisees then heard all about how Jesus and his disciples were baptizing more than John. So this ministry of Jesus started to overtake John the Baptist, where the disciples started to baptize many more. And the Pharisees heard about it. And they decided... John the Baptist is not as important. We need to start to pressure this Jesus. And so they're out for him. So Jesus, rather than uh, engaging with that, leaves Judea for Galilee. So Judea's down here in the south, and he's going up here, up into Galilee in the north. But in the middle, there's a little place called Samaria. Now, if you were a pious Jew, you wouldn't go through Samaria because they're an ungodly people. They're an enemy people. They're unclean. We don't have anything to do with them. So to go through Samaria would make them unclean, so they would go round it. But Jesus walked straight through it. I think that tells you something about him. That rather than it make him unclean, he makes it clean. So it's about the sixth hour, we're told. Now the sixth hour is noon, it's midday. It's the hottest part of the day. The sixth hour in Matthew, Mark and Luke is when darkness descends over the land, the curtain of the temple is torn in two and Jesus dies. So there's a reference there to the sixth hour. But also in John, John refers elsewhere to the sixth hour And it's when Pontius Pilate says, behold your king. Now, it appears as if Pontius Pilate says, behold your king, 
whereas in the other Gospels, Jesus is on the cross. I just want you to know there's no difference here. It's just that John is using a different time measurement. He's using a Roman time measurement. So when he talks about the sixth hour, that's early in the morning. That's when Pilate declared, behold your king. When the others declare um, it's the sixth hour, they're talking about midday. It's a Jewish time. So here at the sixth hour, Jesus approaches Jacob's well and rests on it. Now, Jacob's well, you can find out about that in the Old Testament. It's not my responsibility to go into that here. But the well would have been quite large, would have been brick and round, would have had a covering over it, and you'd have been able to sit on it. Through the centre of it would have been a long rope, uh, which you can wind down, but it would have had a hook on it because you had to bring your bucket out to it. So it's not that there was a bucket there already. That's something you brought out, which is why uh, the Jews have these kind of leather buckets which they fold up and carry around with them. And so they could bring it out to the well, drop it down for water, and then put it into their jar. So Jesus is at Jacob's well. The disciples have gone off to get food in town. And a woman comes out to the well. This wouldn't be unusual if it weren't for one thing. It's midday. Women came out to the well to get water in the early morning and uh, just before sundown, but not at midday. So this is unusual. This is something different. We need to understand, well, why? Why she come out at midday then? It's because... She's an outcast. So we need to understand that right at the beginning. This is somebody who's not in relationship with other people. She's a pariah. She's lower class, poor, a follower, probably known by all, as we'll see. So the time marks her out as an outcast. And what would happen is Jesus is sitting on the well. When the woman came out, she would stop. She would wait for the man to withdraw to at least 20 feet. That's the way that they viewed it. And once he moved, only then would she come to the well. But this woman comes to the well anyway. And that tells you something about her. It's an immoral action. She's coming to the well to talk to a man. This is a long way out of order. Now, Jesus' humanity shines through because we can see that he's weary and he's thirsty. You know what they say? When you're weary, you need to rest. When you're tired, you need to go to sleep. Jesus is weary. He's resting. He's thirsty. He wants a drink. These things are fairly straightforward. I don't think you need a commentary to understand this. So he asks her for a drink. Now, this is outrageous. And it's very hard for us to gather just how significant this is. So this woman's come out to the well speaking with a man while a man is there, which is immoral. But then Jesus speaks to her. And you probably think, oh, Jesus speaks to her. That's what you do. You talk to people. This is so out of order. There are four barriers that are crossed as soon as Jesus says, give me a drink. Firstly, there's a racial barrier. 
Samaritans are heretics and inferiors. Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. Jesus is a Jew. She's a Samaritan woman. Normally speaking, they would have nothing to do with each other. So that's one barrier. Secondly, there's a cultural barrier. They should not be at the well together alone. That's also out of order, but Jesus has crossed that. Thirdly, there's a gender barrier. Men did not converse with women in public. That's another barrier that Jesus has crossed. And there's a moral barrier. This woman has a reputation. She wouldn't be out here at midday otherwise. And Jesus has crossed that barrier also by engaging with her. Jesus is not afraid of barriers. He's a breaker down of barriers. By every convention of the day... Jesus had shunned her. Now practically, it's dry, it's hot, it's dusty. Jesus hasn't got a bucket. He's going to need help if he's going to get water. But a pious Jew would not engage with this woman, would not meet her on the well on his own, would not speak to her, and certainly would not use the bucket she was using. And Jesus has put all that aside to reach this person she points to the barriers and asks him how is it that he even raises any sort of conversation with her if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you give me a drink you would have asked him and he would have given you living water it's a bit mind blowing that's not the obvious response to what's going on here But Jesus is provoking her to make a response. It's unexpected, but we're no longer speaking of physical water, but of something much deeper. For the Samaritan woman, the gift of God would have been the Torah, the five books of the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That, to the Samaritans, was the gift of God. But if this woman knew those five books, she would also understand that she is utterly condemned by them. So this gift would condemn her. Because as we will find out, she's broken the law a number of times and should have been stoned to death. But Jesus has essentially said, I am God's gift. That's what he said. I am God's gift. For the moment, though, she remains rather earthbound. She sees no way for Jesus to draw water. He hasn't got a bucket. He hasn't got very long arms. How's he going to get this water? And that can be a problem in looking to Jesus, can't it? We can't see the means by which Jesus will do the wonders, the miracles, the healings, the provision. We think, I need to see it. I need to, if I could only understand how. If I understood how, I'd have faith. So it's difficult for us to see sometimes. But the woman, you see, trusted the well. She trusted the well. And why not? It's well over a thousand years old. It's been supplying water for generations. Jacob, our father, gave us this well. He even drank from it. 
and his animals. And it's gone all the way through. The point of mentioning the animals is to say, this water has been supplied for men, for women, for children, for even for the animals for over a thousand years. That's where her trust is. In something earthbound. Something physical. Sometimes we can see all our practical needs as the be-all and end-all. And if we have that, we will consider ourselves secure. But Jesus knows what we're like. We're not satisfied by practical earthbound things, are we? And so he says to her, if you drink from this well, you will thirst again. Because you will. If you drink from this water, it might satisfy you in the short term, but it won't last. If you pursue money and fame and things, you will never have enough. If you pursue the body and beauty, you will always feel ugly somehow. If you pursue power and glory, you'll end up weak and powerless. And if you pursue the intellect, you will feel a fraud and fear that you will be found out. So we also need to be wise for looking for practical solutions through commitment. Sometimes we want to know more about God because we fear death. Deliver me from my fear of death. But it's death that's bothering us rather than it's all about him. Solve my emotional problems. That's why I'm here. Change society and make us all feel safe. That's why we want the church. Curb corruption so we might all have more. That's why we want the church. Or provide a social community for me and my children. Church is not primarily any of these things. Church is a salvation community. We're here primarily as an expression of salvation to the world. That's our primary objective. To worship him, to tell the world about him. Now Jesus is speaking to the deep soul cry of humanity. What will satisfy the longing of my soul? Do you know the people that you work with, that you see in the high street, that are around and about here, they have a deep soul cry, a longing for God. They just don't know it. No one's provoking it. For all our physical, practical comforts, the truth is we're never happier than when we're in close relationship with Jesus and know his presence. When we're in the presence of Jesus, there is nothing else worth worrying about. Now, Jesus is speaking of eternal life, but also of an intense peace and joy in this life of knowing him. If we would but trust him to supply the living water and spiritual food that we need. Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. But we worry about what we're going to eat every day. You need to eat and drink every day. It's normal life-sustaining that Jesus is talking about here, but he's talking about something much more. 
You need food and drink to survive, but how much more do you need the spiritual version of that in order to flourish? Now, the woman's spirit is stirred, but it's still somewhere between the practical and the spiritual. She wants what he offers, but so that she doesn't have to come out to the well. And sometimes we can look for our faith to make life easier. If Jesus gives me this living water, I don't need to come out to the well anymore. It won't highlight her uh, immorality. Actually, it will solve her practicality. It'll all be easier. And sometimes we think that's what faith should be like. It should make life easier. How many people here think they've had an easy life since they've been a Christian? Hardly any, I wouldn't have thought. That's not what it's about. Jesus then, instead of trying to explain to her, uses a spiritual gift. Who here has a spiritual gift? Most of you, some of you, actually all of you. Jesus uses a spiritual gift, a word of knowledge about her and calls her to be a witness. I bet sometimes we think spiritual gifts are for Sunday or small group or church things, or when I'm with Christians. Spiritual gifts are for you to use any time. Any time. And Jesus is an example here. The disciples aren't even there. And he speaks to her. Now a witness, generally speaking, in this time, had to be two men. But Jesus is not bound by their cultural expectations and gives her three commands. Go, call, return, or bring. These are the foundations of mission. Go and tell. Call to follow you. Return and bring them back to me, to the church. So she's told to go and bring her husband. Go, call, and bring your husband. Now the woman here, this is the most interesting moment, The woman does not lie when she's interacting with Jesus about this. Go call and bring your husband. I have no husband, she says. But the sin in her seeks to hide the fullness of her sin. Because it's shame or fear of punishment or humiliation. So she says, I have no husband. That's not telling the story as it actually is. That's just telling what she thinks might be, maybe this will go away, it's getting a bit freaky now. But Jesus is about to bring revelation to her, that he knows all about her. But he never shames her, never punishes her, never humiliates her. If there was ever a model for how to interact with those who are not believers, this is it. Never shames her, punishes her, or humiliates her. He says, you tell the truth, but just not all of it. You've had five husbands, and the one you're with, he's not your husband. No wonder she came to the well at midday. She's a pariah, an outcast, known to all, notorious, Approaching Jesus when he's at the well 
gives you an idea of the way that she behaves. She attempts a deflection by pointing to worship. Oh, you're a prophet. There's a sense of affirmation for what he said, it's true, and flattery. Oh, you're a prophet. Yes, well, actually, I am a prophet. I prophesy often. I do this, I do that. Jesus doesn't get caught up with all that. Oh, you're a prophet. We worship here on this mountain, but you worship in Jerusalem. We're different. And then Jesus treats her with a total respect. And he removes the four divides. The person divide. Jesus is the gift, the Messiah. It's not about knowledge. It's not about about the Bible in that respect. Jesus is the Messiah, the gift. So, salvation. All are welcome, including Samaritans. For a Jew, that's a massive thing. To include the Samaritans, it's a bit like Jonah, including the Ninevites. This is big stuff. So you can look at it and think, oh, well, it's just interacting with the different people. It's not quite like that. These are enemies. These are ungodly people. These are unclean people. So it removes the divide of the person, the salvation. And then, this is amazing, he gets shot at the temple as well. The temple is obsolete. Both here, at this well, in this town, belonging to Jacob, where you've worshipped, that's obsolete. And so is the temple in Jerusalem. The Jews today are all about the temple in Jerusalem. Because to them it's everything. But Jesus says, no, that's obsolete. This is a massive thing to say. And then he deals with the law as well. He doesn't condone nor condemn her in her immorality. The law does. If she had read through the law, if she'd have understood the law, she'd be dead by now. Condemned by the very gift she referred to earlier. Now worship, when it's done in spirit and truth, causes seven things. I'm not expecting you to remember all these. But it causes seven things. Firstly, it causes our submission to our, of our whole being to God. When we worship, we submit our whole selves to him. When we've got other things on our minds, we're not really worshipping. Secondly, it quickens our conscience to his holiness. When we're singing about the holiness... It's good to contemplate just how holy God is and the difference between us and how much we need him. Thirdly, it feeds our mind with his truth. We sing truth. We've sung truth this morning. It purifies our imagination by his beauty. You get caught up with the wonders of who he is when we think on higher things. It opens our heart to his love. Number five. Six, it surrenders our will to his purpose. We're looking, actually, for God to speak to us when we're in worship. And it could be that as we worship, God might want to minister and speak to one or two of us. Who knows? And seventhly, it opens us up to the most selfless emotion to which we are capable 
adoration. When we adore the Lord in spirit and truth, we become utterly selfless selfless, because we're caught up with him. It's our submission to our whole being to God, quickens our conscience to his holiness, feeds our mind with his truth, purifies our imagination by his beauty, opens our heart to his love, surrenders our will to his purpose, and opens us up to the most selfless emotion to which we are capable, adoration. The woman expresses a longing for the Messiah. He will show us all things. And Jesus then says one of the most profound things, already had a profound thing from John the Baptist, but this, I that am talking to you, I am. That's literally what he says. I that am talking to you, I am. And you know that when he says that, he's equating himself with God. This is outrageous. At this point, the disciples arrive. Well, you know what they're like. They're like us. They marvelled at his talking to a woman. Not a Samaritan. Not an outcast. But to a woman. But they never challenge him. Nor attempt to remove her. They just watch. Now the woman leaves her water jar behind Bearing in mind that's what she actually came out for. That life-sustaining thing that's been going on for over a thousand years. And she's left it behind. Something more important has gripped her. She now goes off not focused on physical water, but with spiritual water. She has been changed during this conversation. So this conversation with Jesus has radically affected her worldview. Her life is in the process of being transformed then. And she now becomes a witness to truth. She goes back to her town, bearing in mind she's an outcast. And she says to them, come see a man. Now do you think they knew that she interacted with men before? This is not the most confident person to to have trust in, is it? She says, come see a man. He's like, how many men have you seen? He told me all I ever did. We know all you ever did. She says, but you knew already. But he could not have known. Could he be the Christ? Do you see how straightforward this is? Come and see a man. We know about you and men. He told me all I ever did. We know all you ever did. But he did not know, but he did know. Is he the Christ? That's what Christ does. That's what the Messiah does. And what happens? Some of them believe because of her testimony. Oh, that's amazing. It should stir up emotion in you. This woman... The perception of her has changed. Because when she spoke truth, they heard truth. And they started to believe. The invitation then is to come and make your own discovery about Jesus. And so they come out to see him. 
In between, Jesus is speaking of two kinds of water, two kinds of food. The physical, which is constantly needed. The spiritual, which is permanently satisfying. The most basic necessities of life. We can talk a complicated gospel if we want to, but this is very straightforward. This is about water and food. And then he points to the harvest. Now this is for the disciples. So he now talks to them about once they know Christ, once they have the living water, they can see that the harvest is ready for reaping. The fields are white unto harvest. So he's preparing the disciples to be witnesses. Why? Because the Samaritans are on their way out of town to see them. They're already on their way. They could probably see them coming. The fields are white unto harvest. There they are. And as they come out, the disciples are starting to recognise something's happening here. And many believed in him. This is an amazing story if you get into all the background of it. But even on its basic level, it ought to motivate us that by the Spirit we can share the gospel and people will get saved. This conversation between the woman and Jesus took a course leading to salvation. I just want to show you something from her perspective. The first thing she sees is a thirsty man. The second thing she sees is a Jew, an enemy. The third thing she sees is a rabbi, somebody that has knowledge. The fourth thing she sees is a prophet who knows all about her. The fifth thing she sees is the Messiah. She's gone on a journey. Sometimes we can think once we present the gospel, people are going to go from a thirsty person to the Messiah. There's a trail in between. And we've got to be able to present these different facets along the way so that people can journey and process it. Conversations with Jesus are life-changing, but they're also a journey. This woman was a pariah and an outcast. But Jesus gave her respect and value. I wonder if there are people out in society that you think of as being a pariah and an outcast. Do we give them respect and value? Manchester United fans. They're outcasts, aren't they? Who's going to love them? Who's going to share faith with them? Can they be saved? Uh, (laughs) It's us. We've got to learn to value and respect people. Actually, I'm going to use a a slight anecdote. Who knows the programme Modern Family? Not many. Um, Well, in that, it's got a gay couple who have adopted a Vietnamese child. And it's very funny. But sometimes it's very easy for Christians to go and look at that and go, outcast. I haven't anything to do with that. That's just the same as walking around Samaria. We need to be able to reach people who are considered outcasts and love them just the same. They're lovely people just the same. She's a Samaritan woman. This Samaritan woman is the first person to tell her town 
about Jesus. The Messiah. The one the Samaritans have been waiting for. What a testimony this woman will have. She was the one. That outcast. That forgotten person. The one that nobody wanted to know. She made a difference to her town. Outcast to witness. Shall we pray?